All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on 1 Corinthians. In this session, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. And to put that in context, let's just recall where we're at in the argument. Paul begins this section in verse 6 by saying, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. So how does this connect with what he has said so far? Well, the specific point of connection is that in the preceding section, Paul said, when I came to Corinth, I didn't come as one who speaks with a superior words of wisdom. In other words, according to the oratory flourish and rhetorical style of the day that was so popular that proved you were a wise and knowledgeable person. Paul didn't come to Corinth that way. And uh, he spoke words that by the evaluation of the world was viewed as foolishness, not wisdom at all. Um, And so he says in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, my message and preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And that's really the specific point of connection here with verses 6 through 16. Paul didn't speak in that sort of wise way by the standards of the world, but it's not as if he didn't pass along actual wisdom. In fact, recall really the whole previous section from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up through chapter 2, verse 5, was about how the cross is viewed as foolishness by the standard of the world. And yet, even though they evaluate and view it that way, the cross reveals the wisdom and the power of God. And God's foolishness in the cross and in other places, God's foolishness is wiser than the wisest of men. It's wiser than the wisdom of men. And so, yeah, whatever you think might be foolish that God does, well, that's far wiser than anything men could ever come up with. All of this is a key to dealing with the divisions that are going on in the Corinthian church because that those divisions are based on a false worldly understanding of wisdom. So Paul has to correct that view of wisdom, and provide a Jesus-centered view of wisdom. And that's what he's been doing in chapters 1 and in the first part of chapter 2. So now here, in 2, 6 through 16, Paul begins to paint a positive picture of the wisdom of the cross through the Spirit. And so, whereas 1, 18 through 2, 5 shows that by the world's standards and from the world's evaluation, the cross looks like foolishness, It's actually really the wisdom of God, and God revealed that to Paul through the Spirit, and that's what Paul passes on to them. And so he picks up then in chapter 2, verse 6, by saying, yet, yet, like, even though we didn't come with the wisdom of the world, even though we didn't speak that way, even though the cross may be viewed as foolishness to them, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. And so even though he didn't use the rhetorical skills that were so highly prized in Corinth for passing along knowledge and wisdom, Paul actually did speak and teach wisdom. The gospel, Jesus and the cross, that's wisdom. And it's wisdom among those who are mature. Who are those people? Who are the mature? Well, in view of the following context and what he says in the rest of this paragraph, it appears to be genuinely spiritual people. That is, those who live and think and act in sync with the Spirit of God rather than according to the flesh and the world. 
those kind of people, those who walk by the Spirit and live by the Spirit, that's who the mature are. And uh, among those people, what Paul teaches and speaks and the gospel he uh, proclaims, that is known and seen as wisdom. So the mature are those who live and walk by the Spirit. That's why Paul opens chapter 3 by describing the Corinthians as babies, as, that is, not mature. And the evidence of that is what they're arguing about and what they're fighting over. So Paul does speak wisdom, and those who live by the Spirit see the gospel and see Paul's teaching as such. And then in the rest of this section, what Paul is going to do is he's going to unpack what he means by that, and he does that in three parts. Part one is, the wisdom he speaks is from God and not of this age, not of this world. The second part is, God's wisdom needed to be revealed by God's Spirit. Otherwise, we would have never understood it. And then part three is, the natural person, that is the person who doesn't have the Spirit of God, doesn't grasp or welcome God's wisdom. So those are the three parts that he's going to used to unpack this statement that he actually does speak wisdom among those who are mature. And so let's continue on. The first few sentences here uh, is that first part where Paul shows that the wisdom he speaks is from God and not of this age. And so he says, we do speak wisdom among the mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Notice that the wisdom that Paul speaks is not of this age. Uh, Paul calls this present age the present evil age in Galatians chapter 1. It's the old age of fallen human wisdom, fallen human values, fallen human strategies for doing life. That's the age of this present world, and, and that's the age that is passing away. This is one of those places where the idea of the overlap of the ages shows up in the New Testament. It's everywhere throughout New Testament thinking and New Testament theology that you have the old age, the fallen age that's passing away, that is overlapped with the age of the Messiah, the age of the Spirit that has now come in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so we live during the overlap of the ages. And so Paul's passing on a wisdom, but it's a wisdom of the Spirit and of God, not of this present evil age. Notice also here that Paul says not only not of this age, but he also says, nor of the rulers of this age. Who are the rulers of this age? Well, it's a little bit tricky to totally sort it out, but when you look down a little further and you look at verse 8, the rulers of this age are responsible for crucifying Jesus. And so here's what I think is important about this phrase for us uh, to understand, not only here, but throughout uh, Paul's thinking and Paul's theology. The rulers of this age uh, can refer to ordinary human rulers, and sometimes that's the only way it's used in Paul's writings, and it can also refer to the spiritual forces or spiritual powers who work in this world and use human power structures to oppose God. For example, the word ruler in Ephesians chapter 6, when you know we're told that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers and the spiritual forces of darkness. Well, the word ruler there in Ephesians 6 is from the same root word as the word ruler here. And in the biblical worldview, 
the spiritual rulers often work through human rulers and human power structures in their opposition to God. In fact, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 uses another derivative of the same word ruler to refer to the spiritual powers that Jesus defeated through the cross. It says this, Colossians 2.15, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And so the rulers of this age doesn't just refer to physical human rulers. It refers to that, and it refers to the spiritual rulers that use them and work through them uh, to oppose God and his purposes. That's probably why Paul says in verse 8 what he does, that if the rulers of this age had understood God's wisdom, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus, because then they, they would have known that it would have actually been their undoing, right? If they had actually understood what God was up to, they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have done what they did because that was the way God defeated them. And so it's best here to take the rulers of this age as a reference both to the world's power structures and their opposition to God and his wisdom, as well as to the spiritual forces that work in and through those things in their opposition to God and his wisdom. And so the forces that run this present age uh, are opposed to God and they are passing away. That is, they're being nullified. They're being brought to nothing as a result of the victory that Jesus achieved, that God achieved through the cross. So the wisdom that Paul speaks, it's real wisdom, but it's not a wisdom that's in sync with this present age and the power structures and rulers of this present age. Instead, the wisdom that Paul speaks, verse 7, he says is, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. Now, Paul typically uses the word mystery for something that was once hidden, but now has been made known. Some describe it as like an open secret. It's something that for a long time was a secret. It was hidden. It was a mystery. There might have been clues pointing towards what it was going to become, but it hadn't wasn't known yet. That's typically the way Paul uses it. You see it particularly that way in Ephesians and in Colossians. The idea is that what God did in Jesus was a mystery until it happened, that there were hints and there were clues in the uh, Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, but it wasn't obvious and it wasn't clear. And then all of a sudden, boom, it happened. And you could see what the clues in the Old Testament were pointing towards. Um, and so that's what Paul is getting at here when he says, we do speak God's wisdom in a mystery, in something that uh, is hard to grasp, hard to understand, and couldn't have been grasped until it happened and until God revealed it to us. So Paul describes then the mystery in what follows the rest of verse 7 and on into verses 8 and 9 this way. Here's what he means by the mystery. It is the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So the mystery, the wisdom that is in a mystery was hidden, hidden in God, hidden in God's purposes, hidden in God's plans, um, that God had predestined. That is, he pre-planned them. He pre-purposed. God knew what he was going to do. He knew what needed to be done. And he knew that before the ages began, or the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1 is, before the foundations of the world. Like, God knew 
what he was going to have to do to bring about the full intent of his purposes for human beings and for this world before the ages. And he predestined that to our glory. So the wisdom that Paul speaks, uh, the wisdom that was in a mystery, that wisdom is for believers' glory, for our good and for our glory. And then he continues in verse 8 to expand on this. He says, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. And so the wisdom that Paul speaks was a mystery, a mystery that God pre-purposed, pre-planned, predestined for believers' glory. It's a wisdom that even in the present time of Paul's day and our day, it's a wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. The wisdom in a mystery, they just don't get it. They don't grasp it. They don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to them. And then Paul gives this reason for, like, if they had understood it, he says, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's the evidence that they don't get it and that they didn't get it then. They still don't get it in Paul's day. Um, if they had known who Jesus was and what he was going to do, then they would have known that he was God's wisdom, that his actions were the very predestined wisdom of God, they would have known that crucifying him was actually the means of their defeat. And they would have never gone through with it. And the reason for that is because they didn't just crucify merely a Galilean carpenter from Nazareth. No, who they crucified was the Lord of glory himself. And so Paul speaks God's wisdom in a mystery, a mystery that was unclear until it happened, a mystery that is not understood by the power structures of this world and by the spiritual forces who lie behind those power structures. They just didn't get it and they didn't grasp it. They still don't get it. They still don't grasp it. But verse nine, just as it is written, and here's another description of God's wisdom, just as it is written, things which Eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which has not entered the human heart, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And so the wisdom that Paul speaks, the wisdom that the world has not grasped, the wisdom that is uh, in a mystery, it's about the stuff that God has prepared for those who love him. And it goes beyond, beyond what human eyes have seen, what ear has grasped and understood, what has entered the human heart, like it's, it transcends all of that. Now, verse 9, and it seems like Paul is quoting something here, but what he's quoting itself is a bit of a mystery. There's no nothing in the Old Testament exactly like this. Um, and usually when Paul says, just as it is written, that's what he's doing. He's going to quote some Old Testament passage. But we have nothing in the Old Testament that reads exactly this way. And so that's led to a variety of suggestions. And none of the suggestions seems to me to be perfectly clear or satisfying. Uh, some have suggested that Paul is quoting some other writing besides the Old Testament. Paul does that occasionally. He's not opposed to that. Typically, however, when he says, as it is written, he's referring to quoting the scriptures. Um, there are some passages in Isaiah that Paul could be paraphrasing or kind of summarizing in some sort of way, but that's not perfectly clear either. So I think this is just one of those places where we just have to kind of acknowledge that we just don't quite know what Paul is quoting here, what the source of what he's getting at is. 
And we'll just have to wait until we can ask Paul for that someday, right? Like, Paul, like, what source were you getting at in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9? He'll straighten us out, clar- uh, clarify it for us. Even though we don't know the source of what where Paul's quote comes from, the point of it is perfectly clear. Um, verse 9 is a way to amplify what Paul has said beginning in verse 7 about the wisdom that Paul speaks being in a mystery. And it was a mystery that didn't become clear at all until it happened in Jesus. And and so what Paul is saying in verse 9 is, like, this wisdom that he speaks, it just transcends what humans could have come up with on their own, um, what humans could have dreamed up on their own. It's something that has never entered the human heart. Um, it, It is something that comes from God himself. And so what God planned and purposed in Jesus, nobody could have figured out until it happened. It exceeded human understanding and wisdom. And even now that it has happened, grasping its meaning and its significance goes beyond human understanding. And so grasping it, grasping this mystery that Paul speaks, actually involves God's revelation through his spirit. And so in verses 10 through 13, Paul is going to go on to describe how the wisdom he speaks uh, requires God's revelation, that God revealed the mystery in and through Jesus. He revealed it to Paul and his ministry team and presumably the other apostles by the Spirit so that when they speak, they are speaking the revelation of God through the Spirit. And so Paul says in verse 10, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. That is, God revealed his purposes and his plans through the Spirit. And the us in verse 10 refers to Paul and the apostles, and perhaps those in Paul's ministry team. Uh, Keep in mind what he's talking about, all right? So it's easy to take the us to refer to just Christians in general, but Paul's talking about the things he speaks, um, and that they're actually wisdom, even though the powers of this age don't get it and don't think so. So the things that God planned and prepared for people that nobody could have conceived on their own, those things God revealed to Paul and the other apostles through the Spirit. Um, And so the revelation which Paul refers to here is the disclosure of God's full purposes in the cross and in Christ Jesus to Paul and the apostles and those associated with him who preach and teach the gospel and pass that on to those who love God. So Paul Paul knows this, understands this, because God revealed it to him. Then Paul goes on to explain why the Spirit could actually reveal these things, because the Spirit knows God's thoughts and plans. So even though these things were beyond human understanding, they're not beyond the Spirit's understanding. Why? Well, because the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So Paul has said in verses 7 through 9 that the wisdom of God was a mystery. It was hidden. The rulers of this age didn't know it, didn't grasp it. No eye saw it. No ear heard it or understood it. But what he's saying here is the Spirit knew it, and thus the Spirit could reveal it. Why? Because the Spirit searches the depths of God. He has full access to God's purposes and plans. And so while the wisdom that Paul speaks is a mystery to human beings, it's perfectly clear and known to the Spirit of God, and the Spirit revealed them to Paul and to others. Then what Paul does in verse 11 and following is he reflects on this using the example of human experience. 
And so he says in verse 11, For who among people knows the thoughts of a person except the spirit of a person that is in him? We've all had this experience, right? Where I'm sitting here thinking something and no one else knows what I'm thinking at that moment unless I decide to communicate it and vocalize it. But my thoughts are within me, but they're known to me, to my spirit within me. That's the point of verse 11. And so now he makes the point from the analogy from human experience. He says, so also the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. And so God's purposes, God's thoughts and plans and all of that, uh, those things could never be known if God didn't make them known through his spirit. But the spirit knows them because the spirit's within him, right? The spirit's part of him, just like in us. So Paul says this in verse 12. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world. We haven't received the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may know the things freely given to us by God. And again, at first glance, it's possible to think that Paul refers to all believers by the word we. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God. And it's true. All believers have received the spirit who is from God. But in this immediate context, it's really important to pay attention to this. In the next verse, in the preceding verses, and in the following verses, the immediate context, it makes it clear that Paul refers to himself and his ministry team and other apostolic preachers, other apostles, right? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the things he speaks and how God revealed his wisdom to him through the Spirit. And so the we here is best understood still as referring to Paul and those with him, and the apostles, that they're the ones who have received the Spirit of God, so that we, Paul and the apostles, may know the things freely given to us by God. The point is that because they have been given the Spirit of God, the Spirit therefore has revealed God's plans and thoughts and purposes to them, they thus can know the wisdom of God, and that's what they speak. This is the whole context, is what they speak. In fact, the very next verse is what he goes on to say is, we also speak these things. And so the we of verse 12 is the same we that Paul uses in verse 13. We also speak these things. And so Paul had received the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God made known to them then the things freely from God. And Paul now speaks those things to others, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. This is a little bit of a complicated concept, and we're going to have to slow down and spend a little bit of time here to understand really this whole next section of verses. When Paul says that he speaks these things, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, it's actually a little bit unclear, and this translation has freed it up by adding the word thoughts and words, spiritual thoughts, spiritual words. And so we've got to kind of wrestle with what actually is Paul saying here? Uh, The word translated combining here, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, can mean that, it can mean combining, or it can mean comparing, or it can mean explaining or interpreting. And so you either got combining or explaining and interpreting. Then you actually have two words that are actually two forms of the same word that have no object, spiritual with spiritual. So literally, it's just 
combining spiritual with spiritual or explaining spiritual with spiritual. What in the world is Paul getting at? Um, it is a little unclear. And one possibility is the way it's translated here, combining spiritual things with spiritual works. And in that sense, it would describe how Paul and others speak. They combine spiritual thoughts, meaning the thoughts of the spirit, with spiritual words. That's one possibility. But it seems more likely to me, in view of the whole context of everything that's led up to this point, everything that follows this, even down into chapter three, it seems more likely to me that the better way to translate it is explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. I just think that fits the context better. And it seems to be how Paul uses um, this one of these words, at least, in the following verses. In context, Paul's talking about people. He's talking about people who grasp what he teaches as wisdom, right? He began this whole section by saying that he speaks wisdom among the mature, that is, among mature people. He goes on in the very next verse, verse 14, to describe people who can actually grasp the things of the Spirit. He, he continues the topic into chapter 3, actually, uh, and he uses one of these very words that is translated spiritual here, one of these very words to describe the Corinthians as spiritual people, saying he can't speak to them as spiritual people. And all translations translate 3-1 um, that way. So the whole context is about people. One of these words is used in context, clearly referring to people. And so I think it's best to uh, take that context and let that clarify what Paul is actually saying here in verse 13. So Paul speaks the things from the Spirit of God, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. And then he's going to go on and say what he means by that. And he does that with two sentences that contrast who can get this, who grasps it, a person who doesn't have the Spirit of God and a person who does live by the Spirit of God. That, that's the contrast he's going to make. So look at verse 14. A natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Notice we're talking about people. Paul explains spiritual things to spiritual people. But a natural person, well, he doesn't welcome. He doesn't accept. The idea of the word accept is to embrace or to welcome or to grasp the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And that word that's translated discerned here has the sense of to examine and evaluate something. It's used for people examining the scriptures. Or sometimes it's used in a judicial context for uh, examining the evidence. Or the defendant is examined and evaluated. And so um, these things that Paul teaches require the spirit to be examined and evaluated and understood. And so the natural person rejects the wisdom of God that Paul speaks. Why? Not because it's not wise, but because he has rejected the Spirit of God and thus can't accurately evaluate what Paul teaches and see that it really is wisdom. Now, another really important part of verse 14 is who the natural person is. The natural person 
doesn't welcome the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Who is the natural person? Well, the, the Greek word is psukikos, and it refers to literally the soulish person, the one who's merely soulish. What does he mean by that? Well, it's a little unclear, but uh, here are the key things to note. The natural person stands in contrast to the spiritual person here. We'll see that in verse 15. So the natural person, verse 14, the spiritual person in verse 15. So he stands in contrast to the spiritual person. They're real similar adjectives. Um, the natural person doesn't accept or welcome the things of God's spirit. The natural person thinks that the things of God's spirit are foolishness, and he or she doesn't accurately evaluate and grasp the things of the spirit of God. And so I think we have to say that the natural person is an unbeliever. And that's who we're talking about here. Now, the problem is the way this gets translated in some translations. For example, the NIV and a few other translations render the, the, the word soulish person or natural person with the person without the spirit, which obviously an unbeliever doesn't have the spirit. But I don't think that's the best way to express the word, particularly when it leads them to translate verse 15 as the person with the spirit. So they recognize the contrast between the natural person and the spiritual person. Then they translate the natural person as the, the person without the spirit. So all of a sudden in verse 15, then they translate it rather than the spiritual person, they translate it as the person with the spirit. And that leads, I think, to some real problems in understanding what Paul is saying here and on into chapter 3, and it's led to, I think, some bad theology. Um, and so what we want to understand is that the natural person is an unbeliever. Who is the spiritual person then in verse 15? Verse 15 reads this way, but the one who is spiritual discerns all things, yet he himself is discerned by no one. All right, now this is a clear contrast with verse 14. So the natural person versus the spiritual person. The natural person cannot discern, cannot accurately evaluate and examine the things of God's spirit. But the spiritual person can do that. He can accurately uh, examine and evaluate the things of God's spirit. Who is the spiritual person? Well, as I noted, the NIV translates this as the person with the spirit. A few other translations translate it that way also. But that's not an accurate translation. He's not talking about the person who merely has the spirit. And that becomes quite clear when you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul says to the Corinthians, I can't write to you as spiritual people. And it's the exact same word as here. He uh, he says that the Corinthians, even though they're Christians, even though they've been baptized, even though they have the Holy Spirit, he can't write to them that way. Instead, he has to write to them as fleshly. And so the contrast isn't between having the Spirit and not having the Spirit. It's actually about somebody who uh, lives by the Spirit and walks by the Spirit. That's what he means. And so the spiritual person doesn't merely have the Spirit. They actually live according to the Spirit. The, the Corinthians, on the other hand, have the Spirit, but they don't walk by the Spirit and live by the Spirit. They are fleshly. So that's the difference. So from verse 14 down to verse 15 and into 
1 Corinthians chapter 3, there's three different types of people that Paul's talking about. The natural person, that is the unbeliever who doesn't have the Spirit of God, doesn't welcome the things of the Spirit. Then there are two people who are believers. There are believers who are Paul calls spiritual. Those are people who are actually walking according to the Spirit. And I think it's somewhat ironic in Paul's use of it, because they're, it's clear in Corinthians, the Corinthians think they're super spiritual. At least there's a segment of the church that thinks they're super spiritual. And Paul says, well, people who are spiritual, they actually live by the Spirit, and they get my approach to ministry and the things I'm teaching as wisdom. And then the third person is a person who is uh, has the Spirit and is a Christian, but they don't walk by the Spirit. They don't live by the Spirit. And Paul says, that's who you guys are, O Corinthians. You're fleshly. And so the natural person, unbeliever, spiritual person, believer who walks by the Spirit, uh, fleshly, believer who isn't walking by the Spirit. Those are the three different types of people beginning in verse 14 down through chapter 3. And so here in verse 15, the spiritual person is the person who... Uh, walks by the Spirit, and that person, he says, discerns all things, yet he himself is discerned by no one. What in the world does that mean? Well, I think if we track Paul's flow of thought, we can figure it out. The overall topic of the paragraph is uh, that mature people, spiritual people, are people who actually understand Paul's message and ministry as wisdom. Um, that kind of wisdom, however, is a bit of a mystery and was hidden and still is hard to grasp or impossible to grasp apart from the revelation of God. Natural people, unbelievers who don't accept the things of God's spirit, they don't get it. They evaluate it and examine it, and it seems like foolishness to them. But spiritual people, here in verse 15, those who walk and live by the Spirit, well, they grasp what Paul is teaching, and they recognize it as wisdom when they discern it. That is, when they examine and evaluate it, they recognize that's wisdom. That's real wisdom from God. And so spiritual people see the message of the cross as wisdom from God. And so on one hand, the spiritual person examines and evaluates the cross and Paul's teaching as wisdom. On the other hand, he or she, the spiritual person, isn't dis discerned, that is, isn't examined and evaluated by anyone. What does he mean by that? Well, he means like mere human evaluations and judgments about them really don't matter. And his wordplay in the two halves of the sentence, right, can, it's a little ambiguous, a little unclear, but what he means is that when people evaluate you who are walking by the Spirit and living the way of the cross and have embraced the cross, and they think, man, what a fool you are for believing that, Paul's like, eh, their, their evaluation amounts to nothing. So to summarize where we're at, Paul has really said the three main things he wants to say, that he speaks true wisdom, but it's wisdom from God out of this age that God's wisdom, it was necessary that it be revealed by the Spirit to Paul and the apostles, and they pass it on to others, and that the natural person, the person who is an unbeliever, just simply does not grasp and welcome God's wisdom, but those who live and walk by the Spirit, spiritual people, they do grasp it as God's wisdom. They see it as such, and they get it. And so Paul wraps up this section in verse 16 by just really coming back to the main point he's making that Paul speaks wisdom and that 
It's wisdom that has come from God himself. And he, he says it like this. He says in verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul and his team speak with the mind of Christ. The question, who has known the mind of the Lord or that he will instruct him, that question derives from Isaiah 40, verse 13. And the point of that passage in its original context in Isaiah is that God is so immense and so beyond human understanding, who could know his mind or who can instruct God? That's the point there in Isaiah chapter 40. In fact, it reads like this. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Notice there in Isaiah 40, the reference to the spirit, which has been at the center of the last few sentences of Paul's discussion. And in fact, the Isaiah passage goes on in verse 14 um, and says this, Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Or who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge? Who showed him the path of understanding? The point of the passage there in Isaiah is, who can know God's mind and who can instruct him? God's knowledge and wisdom totally eclipses that of human beings. And that's been Paul's point all along here in 1 Corinthians in this section we're looking at. So while at first blush, Paul's answer is unexpected. When Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ, that's his answer to the question. It seems unexpected. It actually perfectly fits the context and the point, both in Isaiah and Paul's own argument. It works like this. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? On the one hand, the answer is no one. Like no one could grasp God's mind or instruct him. That's the point of the, the passage in its original context in Isaiah. Paul's answer, however, is, but we have the mind of Christ. What Paul is saying is, in Christ, by the Spirit, Paul, his team, the apostles, they actually know God's mind. Not because they figured it out on their own, but because they have the mind of Christ. So even though God's mind and God's wisdom is beyond human understanding, Paul knows it. Paul speaks it. And that's why he speaks wisdom. And those who are mature and those who walk by the Spirit they recognize it as such. And so this is a wrap-up to the whole discussion here that fits perfectly in the immediate context. Natural people with, who don't have the Spirit and who reject the things of God, they don't get it. God's wisdom is foolishness to them, but God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And so people who don't know the mind of the Lord, they don't get it. Paul already explained all that. But Paul and his team, they've been given God's very own spirit, and God's spirit has revealed God's mind and thoughts to them, so they have the mind of the Lord. They have the mind of Christ, and thus the things they speak, they are the things of God's spirit. They are the very wisdom of God. And those who live and walk by the spirit, they see that. They grasp that. They get that. And that's how it is that Paul speaks wisdom among the mature. All right, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 or 16. A bit of a complicated section, but uh, hopefully that helped understand it a little bit. Thanks for tuning in to the listener's commentary on this section of 1 Corinthians. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry made possible by the generous support of a whole bunch of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by going to listenerscommentary.com, 
clicking the Give button and setting up a monthly donation right there. Or you can sign up for the Study Hub and support the ministry through the Study Hub. Both are great options for supporting this ministry. Thanks a ton for your support.